0: So the video ended with a question. Only you can answer that for yourself, only I can answer that for myself, for my family, and we collectively for our church. What are you going to do to change that? Now I suggest there's only one appropriate answer, and I speak for myself as an individual. I speak as a father and husband with a family, and as a member of the church here. And that is that world evangelism and reaching the lost with the gospel, especially those who have never heard, must now become the hub of my life, not a piece of the pie. Most churches, when you look at them, they, if you just imagine a pie, they have segments carved out for youth, for building, et cetera. And then there's a little piece of the pie for missions. What I'm suggesting is imagine that same circle, but this time instead of the pieces of the pie with mission one of them, put a circle in the middle, and that becomes world evangelism. So that everything then, the, the only way I can justify a program in a church, um, something in my life, is it's got to flow from that one great commission, his last commandment, that ought to be my first concern, and that is reaching the world with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we do that, there's going to be a great cost involved. It involves sending our own flesh and blood. Some of you are here, you have children. You have little ones. I hope you're training them up so that they are presented opportunity after opportunity with becoming engaged in what God is doing in the world. And that God just might call them and might use you as parents to influence them to go and take the gospel to the end of the earth. It's going to involve generous giving. Rob, Pastor Rob should never have to stand up in this church and say we're lacking 8%, we're falling 8% behind a budget. That ought not to be. You say, well, how do you know that? You don't know what people are making or what they're doing with their finances. You're right, I don't. But I know you well enough to know that that shouldn't be happening. I know it well enough when I look at that figure up there and I see that 2% is going. 2% is going to the work of the Lord around the world. And we think in our training, we've all been raised up with the idea of the tithe being the starting point, the guiding point. I know something's wrong somewhere, but only you can examine your own heart and life and see how involved you are in that. So whether it's sending your own flesh and blood, generous giving, and of course, prayer, it's gonna cost. And we ask the question, well, why go to all the trouble? Why should we send our flesh and blood? Why give money? Why keep on praying about giving more generously to reach people we probably will never meet on earth and pray when we have a lot of needs right here in the USA? I hope to answer some of those questions or at least uh, to challenge your mind and heart to start thinking about the issue at hand. And the five compelling reasons are each gonna have just one word attached to them that I hope will uh, focus your mind and heart uh, at the subject today. Compelling reasons for missions. Number one word is worship. It's one of John Piper's well-known statements where he wrote, missions exist because worship doesn't. All that's saying is this, if there's ever a place where people are not worshiping God and the Lord Jesus Christ, there must then be a missionary effort uh, toward that particular group or people. As we saw a few weeks ago, all through human history, God is asking the question, will you give me glory? Time and again, man failed, man sinned, man rebelled. God would come back in his long-suffering grace, will you give me glory? And on and on, all through human history, and he's saying the same thing today, will you give me glory? When we truly worship the true and living God, then his name is glorified, and his heart is glad. The psalmist said in Psalm 96.3, Declare his glory among the nations. Now we're going to see in the New Testament about evangelizing the nations. The word nations does not have to do with a uh, country like America or Finland or Estonia or Nigeria. It's literally the Greek word ethne from which we get our English word what? Ethnic—it's an ethnic group that has a particular language, culture associated with. Can very be a very small tribe out in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, or it can be a large mass of people. But we want to declare His glory among the various ethnic groups, and and that. Video up there, I think you're going to hear a lot more about that because it's easy to see that grip our hearts and then forget it or I didn't catch this point or that point. It was moving so fast. And to some of you, that was brand new stuff. And I have a feeling in the next uh, months, you're going to be hearing uh, more about uh, that concept. Jesus had two themes he repeated over and again after his resurrection. And the two themes that he emphasized were A, his resurrection. And B, what we call the Great Commission of going into all the world and preaching the gospel. I want to remind you, and I think probably most of you had I asked the question at the beginning of the message, when did the Great Commission begin? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Probably most of us might have said, well, when Jesus spoke it. But I want to remind you that's not true. What Jesus spoke was based on what God had already ri- had written and what Pastor Rob reminded us about going back even to Genesis chapter 10. So when you think of God calling first Abraham, why did he do it? Three reasons. I'm going to make your nation great, your name great, and the world is going to be blessed by you. Three reasons. He made his name great, Abraham. He made a great nation, Israel. And now Through Christ, who came through the seed of Abraham, all peoples of the world are going to be blessed. Why did he choose the nation of Israel? A, to be a repository for the word of God. This book we have was written by the Jews. Number two, to be the seed of the Messiah, Jesus of the seed uh, of of, uh, David. And then thirdly, to be a witness to the world. Those are the three reasons. So God's always had a missionary heart for the nations of the world. Now listen to these words of Jesus. Uh, They're mentioned five times, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, in a little bit different language with a little bit different emphasis. But uh, listen to what Luke says. Luke 24, 44 to 46. Then he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Now keep in mind the New Testament hadn't been written yet. There was no Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So when he's teaching them the scriptures, it is the Old Testament scriptures that he's teaching them. And he goes back to the law, first five books of the Bible. He goes to the prophets, and he goes to the Psalms. Then he opened their minds to understand those scriptures and said to them, thus it is written in those scriptures that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, the Apostle Paul says uh, much the same thing in support of this. Listen to what he says in Romans 15, verses 9 to 12, where he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ becoming a servant in order to confirm the promises of the patriarchs, even going back to Abraham. Verse 9, and in order that the Gentiles, six times we're going to see the word Gentiles, In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. What's a Gentile? A Gentile is simply anyone who isn't a Jew. So it doesn't matter whether you're Nigerian, American, Estonia, Finnish, no matter what. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. It's as simple as that. I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, O you Gentiles, that the people extol him. And again, Isaiah said, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. So here we see Paul is quoting from Isaiah, Deuteronomy and the psalms all to emphasize that jesus is not just a localized deity that is the messiah of israel but indeed, as the, even the Samaritan woman proclaimed, he is indeed the Savior of the world, all peoples of the world. I often think when I, when I see the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross uh, with his arms out extended, that it's almost like at the cross there's a, uh, there's a symbolic way where he's beckoning and uh, the nations to come to him and to bow and worship. Now, America is now, as most of us know, While it was once so uh, percentage-wise Christians, such a tremendous sending forth from missionaries, we are now living in what they call a post-Christian era. But the Lord Jesus Christ continues to build his church around the world. By the year 2050, 31 years away, by the year 2050, more than half of the world's Christians will live in Russia, Latin America, and Africa. Between 80 and 100 million Christians live in China today. Christian minorities are growing throughout Muslim nations in the Middle East and along the Pacific Rim. Now a lot of things you don't hear about that, even like with, with the ministry I'm associated with, we can't talk about some of the areas, we, in, we don't put it on the web. Why? We're in very dark countries with a 99% heavy Islamic atmosphere, and so you can't advertise that, or you put people in harm's way. But let me tell you about one such story of what God's doing in the world today that I hope will encourage you, and it's the church in Iran. I think it's one of the most marvelous stories that you're not going to see it on the newscast or in the newspapers. Uh, we know what we think of when we see Iran mentioned uh, in, a, in a political sense, uh, but it's a tremendous story of what God is doing there that is very similar for those of you who are a little bit older like I am, that remember what happened in China after World. World War II, when Mao Zedong uh, came in with the Cultural Revolution, and uh, a very similar thing, except it was uh, an Islamic revolution in Iran in 1979. And at that time, they established a very hardline extremist Islamic regime. Christians were persecuted. Missionaries were expelled. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles in Persian were banned and soon became scarce. Many pastors were killed and Christian leaders, and many feared that the small Iranian church would soon wither away and die. But our Lord Jesus said, six months before he was crucified, I will build my church. Now, you don't hear a lot about the church in Iran, but did you know more Iranians have come to faith in Christ in the last 20 years than if previous? 13 centuries put together. Did you hear that? More Iranians have come to faith in Christ in just the last 20 years than the previous 1,300 years all put together when Islam came to Iran. Tertullian, the church father, living in the second century, addressed the Roman Empire as Christians were being martyred in Rome. Here's what he wrote almost 2,000 years ago. We are not a new philosophy, but a divine revelation. That's why you can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's last sentence, the blood of the martyrs, the seed of the church, has been repeated all around the world for the last 2,000 years. And wherever you trace, whether you go to the Roman Empire, you go to the Book of Acts, you go to Iran, you go to... Church, wherever the church has been persecuted the most, the growth of the Christian population has also been the most. Now, when you look at where churches are accepted and where it's legal, and we get pretty comfortable here in America... And before you know it, there's a change that is taking place. Why? Because rather than the church evangelizing and making disciples of those in the culture, the culture creeps into the church. And we become more Corinthianized than they do becoming evangelized. But in Iran, God is doing a great work. In 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, they say there are over one million. In fact, last year, the Mission Research Organization Operation World, probably it's the best document written that will keep you up to date on the unreached peoples of the world, named Iran as having the fastest growing evangelical church in the world. Isn't that amazing? The second fastest growing church, if you'd want to try to guess, I doubt that you would get it right, is Afghanistan. So that's now the second fastest growing church. And Afghans are being reached in part by Iranians since their languages are very simple uh, and similar. And uh, many in Iranians turning to Christ now taking it to the Afghans. By the way, the movement in Iran is primarily led by women. So that ought to make you women feel pretty good there. Primarily loved by women. The Lord is glorified as Iranian and Afghan believers, just like believers here in Osterville, worship the true and living God. There's a second word, and it's the word word. And by word, I mean simply this, the authoritative word, uh, the Bible. The Lord Jesus gave the Great Commission, as I mentioned, five times after the resurrection. Dennis Spitters suggests five salient parts to it. The model... The magnitude, the methodology, the message, and the means. And if you trace the Great Commission at the end of each one of those books, except at the beginning of the book of Acts before Jesus ascends to heaven, you'll see there's a little bit different of emphasis uh, in each one. Like the one in John, it's the motto. As the Father has sent me, even so send I you. So as the Father sent the Son from heaven, God is now the Spirit of the Holy Spirit is going to send people forth uh, uh, under the auspices of the church to reach the world with the gospel. The magnitude is into all the world, even those, whether it's 1.8 or 2.3 billion people that are in that A block who have never heard the name of Christ. They Need to hear. The methodology, make disciples of all nations. The message, repentance and forgiveness of sins. Luke, the means you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit is come upon you. Now in Matthew, the Great Commission seems to stress two things. Where he says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So what we've got in Matthew's gospel is the emphasis on evangelism, but also in teaching or training uh, these people uh, to be equipped in, in the word of God. But where the scriptures and the name of Christ is growing the fastest, namely in very difficult areas... It's the most difficult for someone to be there in flush, training them and teaching them so that you could, in our country, if you want to be a pastor, you choose your flavor, choose your place. Bible colleges, seminaries all over the country, great ones, and you can go to, but in most of those countries, there is no such thing, let alone a seminary as even a Bible uh, institute, and so that leads to problems. At least 2 million functioning pastors in the world today, outside of North America, do not have any biblical or theological education. Now, I, I, you know what I think of Pastor Rob, and I know what you think. We got one of the finest Bible teachers on the East Coast, dare I say the country. Every Sunday, well thought through, good mind, big heart, and we get fed the word of God. I've sat under a lot of good men, I haven't sat under any where I feel so fed all the time when I come to church, and we are blessed with that. But imagine if you didn't have any education at all. You'd still have a mind, but if you didn't have an education in, in how to put Bible, biblical theology, and systematic theology and the exegesis of the text and, and studying the languages, uh, how poor off we would be. Two million pastors have, don't even have one week of a bible education so when god sees a great need he oftentimes raises up a someone or something to meet that need and about 20 years ago god reached up a great organization called third millennium whose motto is biblical education for the world for free dr richard pratt who was the a former professor in systematic theology uh, out in the, the, uh, in the middle of the country, and then became president of a seminary in Orlando, Florida. He's the one that God used uh, uh, to raise up this, this third millennium ministry. He wrote this, All Christians should be able to receive sound biblical teaching in their own lands and languages. About two years ago, I was in a conference room with Dr. Pratt, and there were about four others of us in there, or five, And uh, we were talking about getting a partnership together for many of our untrained uh, workers that needed further training in in different parts uh, of the world. And we have that partnership uh, established with them. But as I was sitting there and listening, I knew of Dr. Pratt. I knew he had a PhD in Hebrew from Harvard. I I knew he had extensive academic degrees. I knew of his writings, and I knew of his reputation as a great theologian and scholar. But as I'm listening to his heart, I'm saying to myself, this man's different than other academicians I know. I was in the academic world seven years. And we had wonderful seminary and college professors with the doctorates. But as I'm listening to Dr. Pratt, there is something unusual. There was a heartbeat that I don't hear from most academicians. And in the midst of the conversation, I said, Dr. Pratt, may I ask you a question? And uh, he stopped. He said, of course. I said, I don't know what in the world happened to you, but something happened. I said, I would really like to hear what God used to break your heart for the peoples of the world. And he uh, took a few seconds and coughed, and he said, okay. So he told two stories about the founding of Third Mill, and both had such an impact. He was teaching class out in the seminary in the Midwest before he was president in Orlando. And there was a female student sitting next to an international student from Rwanda. The female student, who, by the way, was used of God to raise millions of dollars for third millennium, who is now the chairman of the board. But anyway, she was a student. And as she was sitting there, she heard this awful gasp from the Rwanda student sitting next to her. They had a a copy of Time magazine there. And uh, she said, are you okay? And he says, well. And he pointed to the Time magazine. And on the cover, some of you may remember, there was a picture of the Rwanda genocide and how uh, the Tutsis. And uh, where, where there was over a million, one out of four people in Rwanda were slaughtered. And there, there was a heap of bodies, one on top of another, on the cover of Time magazine. And he said, he pointed to a little boy. He said, I think that's my son. And uh, they found out in a short time later it was his son. The lady went to the professor, says, we've got to do something to stop that. He said, stop what? Bringing internationals over to our country, leaving their families behind. And she said the things she thought of that day She was thinking and worried about getting to her son's soccer game on time. He was troubled about a boy of his that was slaughtered and mutilated, had his hands cut off. And she said, we got to do something about this. And God then spoke to to Dr. Pratt's heart. A little time went by and he was over in India. And he was in a little village over there. And he was talking to the evangelical pastor, the only pastor in the village in India. Probably has more unreached peoples than any other country of the world today. And as he was talking, he noticed a teenage girl, a young teenage girl that was crippled, laying on the floor. And he asked what the situation was, pastor said. And he said, is there no hope for her? Can't get any help? He said, oh, if she had an operation, she would be okay. So immediately Dr. Pratt, if you've ever been to the third world, the American dollar is very powerful. People need help. And so Dr. Pratt immediately thought, they're going to need money. He brought into the country just under $10,000, which was the most he could bring in. And he said to himself, as the Holy Spirit struck his heart, he said, I will give whatever is needed. And the pastor caught on what he was saying. He said, oh, no, 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 no. He says, we don't need your money. And Dr. Pratt said, well, I thought you said an operation would bring healing. He said, but she can get, and he pointed over the hill, she can get a, ho- a free operation at the hospital over there and she'd be fine. Well, like any of us, we're thinking, well, why not? What, why hasn't it been done? And here was the words from the evangelical pastor, only one in the village. He said, we believe this young girl is bearing the sins of our people in the village through her illness. And by her suffering, we are healed and forgiven. So if she is healed, we won't be forgiven. She bore is bearing our sins. And that was the second thing that God used in his life. And as a long Story is just brought to a conclusion today. Third millennium today employs a team of over 40 employees as well as translators all around the world. They focus on five target languages, English, Arabic, Mandarin, Chinese, Russian, and Spanish, which cover 42% of the world's population their materials are also translated into other global languages including indonesian hindi romanian french farsi in iran greek and telugu there in india so here's another case of a situation where people catch the vision in obedience to the word they now pick up that second aspect of the great commission not only evangelism but making disciples by training them to observe all things. Worship the word. Thirdly, the word is way. Here's another compelling reason to fully embrace, but it's difficult for many. Some of you will resist what I'm saying in the next few minutes. I know that. And until you've had the time to work through the biblical and theological aspects of this, it'll be a hard truth for you to accept we believe that the bible teaches that the lord jesus christ is the only way to heaven and that without the saving grace that men die and go to an eternal hell if he or she has never first had the opportunity to know about the gospel and then two, to trust in christ Listen to the words of Jesus, Peter, and Paul. In John 14, 6, you know pretty well, on the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. Acts four twelve, King James is in my mind. There's no other name given ever in our heaven whereby a man must be saved only through Christ. Galatians, Paul says this, I don't know if I don't frustrate the grace of God. If righteousness could come through the law, then Christ died in vain. What he's saying is this, if there's any other way to heaven, through some law, through some ritual, through some religion, if there's any other way possible for people to go to heaven, then Christ died in vain. No, Christ didn't die in vain. He died for the sins of the world because all the world is guilty and condemned without the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the arguments for this biblical truth are much deeper and wider than simply three proof texts, for it involves a deeper study of biblical and systematic theology. John Piper, you'll hear me quote him quite often, he wrote a wonderful book entitled, Let the Nations Be Glad. It's outstanding. And in that book, John asks three questions, then he provides the answers from the Bible. He says, one, will anyone experience eternal conscious torment under God's wrath? Two, is the work of Christ the necessary means provided by God for eternal salvation? Three, is it necessary for people to hear of Christ in order to be eternally saved? Piper then writes, biblical answers to these three questions are crucial because in each case a negative answer would seem to cut a nerve of urgency in the missionary cause. He then does a masterful job of exegesis of the scripture and gives the biblical authority for his answer. I was listening last night to a song by my favorite contemporary musician next to Chemo, uh, who is uh, Lauren Daigle. And I just love Lauren Daigle to death. I listened to the song over and over again, just wept as she sang. It's called the song, Rescue. It's not one of her most popular ones. I will send out an army to find you in the middle of darkest night. I've been to over 90 countries. It's dark. I mean, it is so dark. But even as I think of being in the river and going in Suriname where they were worshiping a rock god, and I saw the otters. Going up to a Buddha in Seoul, Korea. Going out to the jungle tribe in Papua New Guinea. You just see the utter oppression and darkness. But as awful as that is, I think of when a person without Christ in that darkness dies, they go to outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth without any hope of ever getting out of hell. A few weeks ago, I had a dinner with a good friend. He has a place in East Falmouth, a condo. Then he, he lives in Florida, He's from Pittsburgh. Very successful businessman, very, has done very well. Loves the Lord. It's one of those guys you just wish, kind of like my dad. My dad was a great man, but kind of wish. I just wish he would have had years to be able to sit under a teacher like Pastor Rob just to be fed. Because you can see the biblical, lack of a better word, the biblical lack of knowledge. But as we were talking and having dinner, and we focused then on category A in that video, and whether it's 1.8 or 2.3 billion who have never heard the name of Christ. And we say they're lost. They need the gospel. He said, Harry, he says, I just can't accept that. I just don't believe that. And I realized at the dinner table, you're not going to go through the biblical theological arguments and solve the problem. So I said, well, let me just approach it from a very practical level then. I said, let me assume for one, just sake, sake of argument, let me assume you are right and I am wrong. I said, so I want to assume what you're saying is that person over there in the jungle who's never heard of Christ, that as long as he's sincere in whatever manner he's worshiping, even though he's never heard of Christ, never been born, that person will die and go to heaven. I said, that's what you're saying, right? He said, yes. He said, I can't believe a loving God would send him to hell. I said, okay. I said, let me ask you two questions. And I thought, I said, if a person is here tonight and I'm talking to him and he hears the gospel, he understands and he just says, I don't want Christ. I'm okay. I don't need him. I said, do you think that person who dies then goes to hell? He says, yes, I do. I said, okay. I said, let me ask you uh, a second question then. Would you agree with me that life at the longest and he's a few years older than I am, by the way, I said, would you agree with me that life at the longest is short on earth and that eternity is forever lasting, forever and ever and ever? Therefore, eternity, where we spend eternity, is a whole lot more important than even what happens here on earth. He says, yes, I would agree with that. I said, Tom, I said, I know you better than this. But the statement you made a few minutes ago is one of the most cruel statements a person could make. And I don't think you're that kind of person. If that person over there who's never heard of Christ is on his way to heaven, and then I go over and tell him about Christ and how to trust Christ as Savior, and he rejects Christ, according to you, he goes to hell. But if he's never heard he's okay, he goes to heaven. I said, Tom, can you tell me for the life of me, I can't understand it, why we would want to send anyone over there to tell him about Christ if he's already on his way to heaven when rejecting Christ, he will go to hell. Obviously, there wasn't an answer for it. Christ is the only way. People do need to worship. We do need to be obedient to the word of God. Let me close it out with just a couple thoughts. Works is the fourth word. The thought here is that God will reward his children who have been faithful in their stewardship. It's a command. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples. It's a command. So what am I doing with that command? That's what, now that's what you've got to answer. What are you doing? What's your family doing? What are you doing with your money? I hope I never again, as long as I'm here, ever hear Pastor Rob say something about the shortage of finances meeting the budget. That ought to cause us to weep and wail and look inside our hearts to say, what in the world is going on? It ought not to be. What are you doing about missions? What are you doing about prayer? What are you doing about young little children or grandchildren? What influence are you making for the need around the world? Are you obedient? There's much to say in the Bible for the Christian about future rewards in heaven and accountability at the judgment seat of Christ. That I'll give an account for all my words, for all my works, and for my faithfulness. I'll give an account what I did with all the things God entrusted to me. My treasures, my talent, my time. There's an accountability factor. And all of eternity that I'm going to live and that you're going to live with the Lord is based upon what we've done with our goods down here. That's the degree of what the judgment is all about. Paul says in this very familiar passage, whether we're at home, that is with the Lord, Or whether we're away down here. We make it our aim to please him. Boy, that's a powerful word. The driving force as we get up every day. Lord, how can I please you? How can I walk with you? How can I be more obedient? How can I do more for you than I did last month, last year? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I don't think a Christian will probably realize the sobriety of this thought unless he has come first to the knowledge that he owns absolutely nothing. Not a thing. It's not your wife, it's not your husband. A person belongs to God. They're not your children, they're the Lord's. They're lent to you. It's not your money. It's not your bank account. It's not your boat. It's not your house. It's not your car. You don't own a thing. Only when you come to that realization that you can then say, Lord, since I don't own anything, I'm a steward. You're the Lord. You're the master. Now, Lord, how do you want me to use these things you've entrusted to me? That's the answer. How do you want me to use these things, my life, my talents, my treasures, anything, everything I have, how do you want me to use them as your steward? Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf had this kind of encounter when meditating on a painting of Ecce Homo. Many of you remember doing down the Via del Rosso. We came to the Ecce Homo arch. That's behold the man. And there's this painting that was on the walls in Dusseldorf Museum, and it captured Count Zinzendorf. He had it all. He had money. He had fame. He had position but as he was just looking upon Christ being scourged and before he was crucified. At the bottom of the painting, the artist had put this at the bottom. I have done this for you. What have you done for me? And after a long time, Zinzendorf said, I have loved him for a long time, but I have never done anything for him. From now on, I will do whatever he leads me to do. As a result, the Moravian Church was born, probably the greatest missionary movement uh, denomination that has ever existed in the world. That was an encounter. Your encounter may have been different or brief, even like a morning service when Pastor Rob says, let's bow in prayer. God has moved your heart, and you respond. Tozer said, though, the results will be evident in the life of the person touched as long as he or she lives so true worship the word the way works last point is worthy compelling reasons for world evangelism it's a beautiful song we're going to sing in just a moment and Kim was going to lead us the question is asked and then the response by the congregation is answered is he worthy and we sing back yes we believe he is worthy. Based on Revelation 4 and 5, the focus is on God. He's sitting on the throne, and people come, and angels are there, and the redeemed of the ages are there, and he's holding a scroll. And like every scroll, back in those days, a little summary was written on the cover, but the details are written down inside the scroll. Let's open the scroll to see what it says, but it says, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one could. John says in verse 4, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy. And one of the 24 elders representing the church of the Lord Jesus says, Weep no more, John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then we see that Jesus steps forth, that he alone is worthy to open the scroll and take back the universe. Because he has conquered death, Satan, sin, demons, and hell, he alone is worthy. And Then in that same passage, we the redeemed will join the heavenly choir from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lord. He alone is worthy. 2.3 billion cannot sing because they've never heard of Jesus. Comes back to me again. What are you going to do to change that? Only one thing. World evangelism, the lordship of Christ over my life, world evangelism, taking the hub of the wheel. I can't change it all, but the Lord can change my life and use me and then use us together he is worthy. Compelling reasons for world evangelism. Shall we pray?